Hello, and welcome back to the top 10 things you can do to prevent child sexual abuse. You made it, folks. This is it. Tip number 10. Way to go. Thank you so much for hanging in there and making it to this final episode. Today, I'm going to be talking about raising resilient kids. So I just want to address resiliency because I think that that is a complicated term and uh, it it's depends on really how you define it. But what I really think of when I'm talking about resiliency is having kids that can face adversity, that can handle adversity, and really overcome to some extent and be functioning in this world, however you want to do it, but that they have recovered in some way. I think more of the opposite of resiliency, and that is being traumatized and having a lot of post-traumatic stress um, that really limits your ability to cope and function. And a lot of the adverse childhood experiences research highlights how people can really suffer as the result of having these traumas throughout their childhood, especially those secrecy traumas that cannot be spoken of. And sexual abuse, I think, is is the top one of those. So these traumas that, that when you can't talk about them, when you can't process it, you really become quite traumatized and suffer as a result. And when we look at how much suffering there is in this world, when we look at the segments of the population that are just not doing well, these are people that are really just struggling. Maybe it's the homeless population, people that have substance abuse issues, people that are involved in the child welfare system as parents, um, people that are in prostitution or being trafficked, um, and then the prison population. When you look at the adverse childhood experiences research, you can see how sometimes there are some really, really sad, horrific outcomes for people that have a large number of ACEs. Like the amount of prisoners that have a huge number of ACEs is really astounding, and yet it shouldn't be surprising to anyone that this is what happens to abused and neglected kids, is they end up going down this very bad road. It's not a predetermined destiny. You certainly can get off that road if you have some of the protective factors and opportunities that we talked about in the last tip. Um, but, but people that are really struggling later on in life and stuck in their post-traumatic stress, I would say, are, are not resilient. So what we want are, are kids that are, are very resilient and able to recover to some extent, um, but also to be really strong, adaptable kids that have a lot of the protective factors that maybe are able to avoid abusive situations in the first place, or at least be able to report them right away. So it's not just about preventing the abuse, but really preventing the post-traumatic stress that could happen afterward, which is what makes child sexual abuse so devastating. And as you've heard me say before, the trauma lies in the secrecy. A person that is able to run and tell their mom what has happened or their dad or some adult that knows how to respond right away is going to fare so much better in the long term than a child that has just shame and is unable to speak of what has happened. So 
I really believe that kids have the high potential for recovery. I hate it when I hear people say things like sexual, being sexually abused can kill your soul and destroy a person. I mean, that's just so stigmatizing and it really, um, in, in my opinion, takes away the, the hope that there really should be because I think people really can recover from this and it's all in the telling and breaking the rules of the offender because as long as that offender has been able to silence them, then that person still has power over the victim and that's where they really struggle with being able to recover. So, um, but there are things that, you know, if a kid does, um, does, is abused and then does tell, um, but doesn't get the appropriate response, um, and is met with a non-supportive environment, that also can really disrupt resiliency. So, so some of the things that I see the most, um, when parents are, are not supporting their child, um, are around three different things in particular. Um, that is shame, in some way shaming the child, in some way blaming the child, um, or not believing the child. Um, so those are the, the primary things that a, a person, a caregiver, a parent um, could do to, to be non-supportive. Um, and then additionally, there's the problem of um, maybe offering support and not doing any of those things, but still failing to report it. So I talked about that in tip number eight. So I just want to just go through and kind of address some of these issues around how some parents, for example, shame their child. These are things that I have actually heard my clients tell me about some of the, their experiences around shame. I will never forget the look on my mother's face. She was disgusted by me. My mom and dad will never look at me the same way again. They see me completely differently now. My dad told me his abuse was way worse than mine and I shouldn't make such a big deal out of it. My father said that I shamed my entire family by losing my virginity. This was to a rape victim. And one girl told me, I overheard my mom tell my grandma that I am now damaged goods. So all of these things can really make a child feel the stigma and the shame of their abuse. And of course, I never want a child to have to hear any of these messages. Instead, we want them to know that we are so proud of them for telling and that they're going to get through this and that they've done nothing wrong. And this happens to a lot of kids. And those kind of messages are just so much more likely to take a child down that resiliency road. So another thing that can make a child really stuck is when they blame themselves or they feel that somebody else is blaming them. Um, so self-blame and shame, they kind of go hand in hand. And, and one of the best ways, I think, to tackle that issue, and I've talked about this before, is really just putting this in context of if this was a situation of physical abuse rather than sexual abuse, how would it be handled differently? And so if you're imagining that to a child instead of somebody doing something to their sexual parts, um, and whether it's a, a teenage girl at a party that is a drunk rape victim, 
or whether or not it's a six-year-old boy that idolizes his uncle. Um, you have to just, it's never ever a child's fault. And part of what they can understand about it is if it was a physical abuse incident, if they got beat up, if they were hit instead of touched in a sexual way, if they were physically abused, how would that response be different? How would it be perceived differently by everyone else in, in their community? Um, and how would parents be able to respond differently if they were able to sit with their child and cuddle them and tell them how much they love them and how, how sorry they are that they're hurt like this. And some for some reason, when it's sexual abuse, that stigma just raises the level of discomfort so much that very often kids are not getting the love and support and even like physical comfort that they may need. And uh, that can really contribute. They might misinterpret that as somehow they've done something wrong. So we, we really want to help them see that this has nothing to do with sex. And it's way more, has everything to do with abuse. Another way that I see kids feel shame and self-blame is if nobody's talking about it. And yes, you don't want to ask them a million questions and talk about it so much that it makes them uncomfortable, but you also don't want it to be something that is untouchable and unmentionable. And so thinking about if this trauma was something like a child being in a big car accident, for example, how would you be talking differently to them about it? Would it be that you never, ever mention the car accident? Of course not. And so I think a lot of times people tiptoe around sexual abuse because of that sexual element of it. And it really should be seen more as a, a physically violent situation and treated as such. So even though it wasn't necessarily um, a, a knife to the throat kind of situation, as I've explained, very often this is not in the context of a very violent situation, but it is a physically abusive situation. So um, kids just, they don't want to talk about it very often. And so when parents meet them there and they don't want to talk about it, they're meeting them in avoidance. When you learn about post-traumatic stress, there are all these different symptom clusters that make up that diagnosis. And one of those is avoidance, not wanting to talk about, think about it, have any experiences that remind you of the traumatic event. And so very often these children that are traumatized, they are in a state of avoidance and they have those symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And very often the parent also is suffering from the symptoms and they meet the child in that avoidance. Uh, but this is just in many ways unintentionally implying to the child that this is something they can't speak of. And this really can, can be detrimental and make them feel that stigma and that shame even more so. So one of the best ways that you can address that is by getting the child and even potentially yourself into mental health treatment. As I have said before, this, I believe, is totally recoverable, and I have a lot of children that have come to me for therapy that have had high, high rates of post-traumatic stress, and that upon completion of their therapy, after just several months of treatment, usually, 
um, those scores are significantly lower and no longer indicate that they're symptomatic of post-traumatic stress. And so seeing that progress is why I absolutely love this work and it's just so cool to watch kids and families get better. It's absolutely possible. And so um, I think that very often parents are like, well, I, I don't want to make her talk about it anymore. She's been through enough. But really, that's how you get better, is talking about things. That's just how the world works, is anytime you go through a traumatic experience, the way to be less overwhelmed and less terrified of the experience to take the power away from it, you have to be able to talk about it. Somehow, if you are feeling like I cannot speak of it, it just makes it all the more stressful. We don't do this with any other kind of traumas. We encourage children to talk about what has happened to them. And for some reason with sexual abuse, it's it's just so hard for people to, to know how to talk about it. And so that's why going to an experienced clinician can really help. Um, I use a type of therapy called trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and it is one of the most well-researched and well-respected evidence-based models for treating trauma. And in particular, there's a lot of research around sexual abuse trauma. And uh, so finding a, a therapist that provides TFCBT would be excellent. Um, and any other kind of evidence-based treatment, as long as they're a trauma-focused provider and they're using some kind of assessment to show progress, um, that's a really important thing to look for in getting your kid the help that they need. So, um, and, and, you know, still we, we want to consider the other part of where kids get stuck, and that's when their parents struggle to believe them. And, you know, I mean, I think it, initially, at least, it's, it's reasonable. I mean, nobody wants to believe anything horrible can happen to their child. If you took your child to the doctor and there was a cancer diagnosis, you would not be considered a bad parent if you wanted to get a second opinion. It is okay to have initial doubt and to be very scared. But being stuck in that when you have professionals telling you otherwise is a very dangerous place to be. And very often parents initially doubt the disclosure, but, but you just have to be able to push through that initial disbelief if there are other things such as your child's continued statements and support and therapy and things telling you that yes, this actually did happen. So you have to be able to believe your child because your disbelief can be completely detrimental to their healing. This is a place that I think so many kids just really, really suffer and continue to be traumatized when they feel that nobody believes them. So it, it is hard to believe victims at times. Those symptoms, I talked about this before when I said how I got into this work, working with these kids that were committed because they were um, in the juvenile justice system. I mean, their symptoms do look like deviance and they sometimes lie and run away and steal and use drugs, disrespect authority because this is exactly what uh, their abuse has led them to. They're either negative coping skills or just just being angry with the world. Um, 
And sometimes parents disbelieve their child because they don't feel like they have enough symptoms, that they're acting normal and they're putting on that front of, of everything is okay. And as I've explained, a lot of times kids are trying to hide the abuse. They are part of that secret. So there's that confusion when they love and care about the person that is offending on them. And, you know, there other things that I hear from parents is, well, I would have known I, and, and there's this kind of acting like I know absolutely everything that my child does. I mean, really think about it. Do your parents know absolutely everything that happened to you as a child? Of course not. And so it's just, it, there, there are going to be things that happen. Um, it just, it, it, it can happen in a moment and it can happen even right in front of a parent sometimes. And it's just, you know, a child can be lying on a couch under a blanket with somebody and it can happen that easily if they have been groomed enough. So um, the sometimes parents just don't want to believe a child because their story just doesn't add up. It just doesn't make sense. That potentially could be concerning, but the reality is, is that stories generally don't make sense when you're talking about something traumatic. If you've ever gone through a traumatic experience and you're trying to put together the pieces of what happened, you know that there's memory fragmentation and there is just this whole physiological impact on your brain in that moment of trauma that makes things very hard to piece together and hard to remember and to be able to describe in a clear narrative. It is part of therapy being able to put those pieces together and try to make sense out of this mess of a trauma memory. And so it's just, it's very overwhelming and it's, it's very normal that sometimes it's just not a clear cut, um, forthcoming narrative type disclosure at the very beginning. It usually comes out in pieces and uh, it, it sometimes just does not make sense. Um, and then just I think a lot of times parents struggle because they're in a relationship and they've been groomed by the offender and uh, the offender says it doesn't happen or it didn't happen and so they, uh, they believe them. And so I, I, it's very rare that an offender has been like, you know what, thank you for helping me to come clean. I've been waiting for you to give me this opportunity. Just his does not happen. So um, they, they sometimes just really feed off of that denial of the offender. And well, no, he says it didn't happen. And I'm like, well, that's not really very surprising. So kids are less likely to be resilient if they are stigmatized, if they are not believed if they are somehow blamed. And then, like I said earlier, it's also very important in the parents report, because once again, I want to reiterate that that is the place where a lot of kids get very stuck, because they do tell about the abuse. And maybe they are given all this love and support by their parent, but if it's not reported, they are getting this message that something they did was wrong. Or why else wouldn't it come out? Why, why else is my mom on the team of the offender or my dad? But specifically, I know of research that looks at uh, disclosures to mothers. And in one sample of sexual abuse prosecutions, one-fifth of the children 
had initially made a dead-end disclosure, so that's one that was not reported to the authorities to a parent. Um, or I, I suppose in that case it was another supportive uh, person. Well, I guess non-supportive person if they didn't report it, but um, another adult in the child's life. But in another research study, um, those dead-end disclosures um, specifically were made to a biological mom in in approximately one third of the cases that were examined. So this is it's an issue, and I see it in therapy because I I do hear from kids sometimes how they did tell and they. Um, they did and very often ask their mom or whoever they told not to report it, but this is not a decision that a child should make. Sometimes we have to do the hard thing as a parent, and I am sure that there are medical treatments that children do not want to do. Just thinking of getting them their shots, they don't want to do that, and we have them do it because it is for the greater good. So it is just that we, we need to do things as parents sometimes to step it up and set an example and making a clear message to the child that you are not on team offender, I think is the best one that will, in the long run, with the help of mental health treatment, help your child to be very resilient. So to wrap this up, I just want to really quickly review the past 10 tips with these thoughts on how a child is really going to be not at all appealing <laughs> for a sex offender. That we want to have a child that they're going to avoid, and this is what that child will look like, is they understand the nature of what sexual abuse is, and they know that it is the responsibility of the offender when this happens. It's never, ever a kid's fault. Your child does not keep secrets, and they tell people they don't keep secrets. If the babysitter is saying to your child, well, don't tell mom that we're going to let you watch this movie. Well, you know, we don't have secrets in my house, so that would be an ideal response and make a child much less likely to be victimized. Your child knows that they are the boss of their body and that there is absolutely nothing that can get in the way of that and that they are able to stand up for themselves um, and don't have to go through things like being tickled or sitting on laps or giving kisses um, that they don't want to do. Your child knows who that they can talk to if anything like that ever happened. Your child is confident and they have good self-esteem and a lot of different ways that they can get positive attention. They know that they can appropriately question authority and be respected if they do so. And your child is comfortable talking to you about sex and asking questions if they need to. And finally, they're not isolated and have appropriate supervision. So I really believe that the more kids like this that we have in our communities, the less likely that offenders will be able to find children to prey upon. And that is exactly what I want to do is, is put them out of business or put myself out of business. At least that would be the ideal is, is to not have as many kids coming through our doors as I do. I would really love it if we could work together and by listening to this podcast, you have really contributed to being able to do that so that we can work together as a society to make sure that, that 
we understand a lot of the myths around sexual abuse, we know what to look for, and we know how to educate our kids so that we can finally put an end to this. I really do believe that through education, this is possible. So I just thank you so much for taking the time, and I hope you've gotten a lot out of this class. Again, I just want to recognize that a lot of people listening to this podcast were victims themselves. And again, I just encourage you to do your own work. You did nothing wrong. There's nothing for you to be ashamed of. And the best way we can start changing our society is start breaking the rules of these offenders and telling on them. You do not need to keep their dirty secrets for them. This is exactly what they want you to do. And as long as you're following that rule and keeping the secret for them, they continue to have power over you. So please break the silence. This is the best way for your own recovery and to assure that this is not passed on from generation to generation. So you can, um, Seek your own help, again, through the RAIN network, finding local therapists in your area that work on the issue of sexual abuse. And, um, and of course, then, if anything happens to your child or a child you know, make sure to report it right away to your local law enforcement or Child Protective Services Agency. So, again, the the phone number for the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network is 1-800-656-HOPE. So, this is it. We are wrapping this up now. And uh, so, just please continue to be champions for the cause. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen Um, Again, I just really am indebted to my clients and their families. The whole reason I have this knowledge and expertise is because of you and trusting me with your stories over the years. It is an honor and a privilege, and I appreciate so much you giving me permission to share your stories um, with the world, really, so that people can heal from this in learning through your experience. I want to thank the Garfield County Department of Human Services, who has been kind enough to employ me for the past 15 years and has also been a massive contributor to my expertise in the field through their endless support and willingness to send me to trainings. I appreciate them immensely. Um, The Riverbridge Regional Center, where I work out of the Children's Advocacy Center, It has been such an honor and a privilege to work with that crew of people since 2007 when we opened. We've been putting a face to sexual abuse in our community by by having a place for these families to go and not keeping it in the shadows anymore. And I am so proud to work for this advocacy center and uh, just provide therapy out of there. And uh, it is one of the top ones in the state. I feel like it's a leading model thanks to our incredible director, Blythe Chapman, who has just held us to a very, very high standard. I, of course, have to thank my own daughters for being my inspiration for this class and great teachers that um, have made me the parent that I am, thanks to lots and lots of practice 
And of course, my supportive husband, I need to think as well. So, and then the book, Who's the Boss of This Body, would never have been possible if it wasn't for my fabulous cousin, Adam Ariola at Fineo Publishing in St. Louis. He did an amazing job with his team on the illustrations, and I am immensely grateful because anybody that's ever read a book to a child knows the importance of having really great illustrations along with it. And I love watching children when they are reading this book and how the pictures keep them engaged and make them laugh. And it's great, and I am very indebted to him. So I also want to just give a shout-out to all of the different um, agencies, uh, nonprofits that are out there, um, with their materials that I have drawn upon when I'm not doing this class live in person. You can't see the slides, so you haven't been able to see me crediting everyone for the great statistics um, that really support everything that I've said. So some of those websites are the National Traumatic Stress Network, I'm sorry, National Child Traumatic Stress Network, NCTSN, the National Children's Alliance, Darkness to Light, Stop It Now, um, the childwelfare.org, the CDC, pretty much any of the statistics that you are hearing about are in one of those places. So thank you all again for taking the time um, that you're dedicating to your children, keeping kids safe in our communities in this podcast, and uh, I appreciate all that you are doing to keep our kids safe from sexual abuse. So have a great day. Thanks again.